government should recognise that training is a public good. It benefits the individual and the industry as much as the individual enterprise. So therefore, maybe it should be overtly government funded, which means that TAFEs don't have to work, um, waste so much time on chasing contracts, which are notionally paid for by industry, but are really paid for by government. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is the future role of public providers. Our vocational voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director NCVR. Hello, Simon. Hello, Steve. Robin Shreve, Adjunct Professor, Federation University and President, Australasian Vocation Education and Training Research Association, a veteran. Hello, Robin. Hi, Steve. And Craig Robertson, CEO, TAFE Directors Australia. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. 30 years ago, the Australian vocation education and training system was on tenterhooks as two major reports were released into the management and costs of training for enterprises against a backdrop of award restructuring that was being championed at the time by the Hawke and Keating governments. The Scott report shocked many by outlining a view that TAFE New South Wales should be 50% self-funded within eight years uh, due to efficiencies, industry contributions, and in particular, a vastly increased offering of fee-for-service training, Meanwhile, the Deverson report called for less barriers for industry and private providers and for industry to fund training and workforce development to boost our skilled workforce, even if that training was delivered by TAFE through a fee-for-service approach. Well, how has TAFE embraced fee-for-service and are there myths and assumptions surrounding the size of the fee-for-service market and its efficacy or otherwise? That's what we'll explore in this conversation. Robin, I'll, I'll turn to you firstly because you've looked deeply into the findings of these reports and the outcomes in TAFE and the VET sector more broadly. Perhaps could you start by filling in the background in which uh, Scott and Deverson were conducting their investigations? Were they seeking solutions to problems or were they rather looking for ways to seize new opportunities? Well, thanks, Steve. Look, the, the Scott report was specifically about TAFE in New South Wales. So it was a state-based report, whereas Deverson was national. And the Scott report really came out of the Griner government and the Griner government, Griner made great play of the fact that he had an MBA and he was going to bring commercial practice into government. And it was very much seen as almost Thatcherite in its emphasis on economic liberalism and finding new ways of funding. And there was a perception at the time, and I'm so old I lived through both of those reports, <laughs> that um, by, by the government that TAFE in New South Wales at the time was this highly centralised bureaucracy, um, command and control, which was unresponsive to the needs of industry. And also there was an element in the report as well and a perception that it was far too closely aligned with the very powerful Teachers Federation. So it was seen as inefficient, a drain on the public purse, not giving value for money, and therefore it was ripe for reform. Now, as you say, one of the things that came out and shocked everybody was that uh, Scott came out and said that TAFE should be 50% self-funding. Now, in his first report, he didn't actually define what that would mean. And I remember that we sat round 
working it out. And one of my colleagues actually was said that, well, you know, if taste 50% smaller, it can be easier to self-fund <laughs> because it's smaller. But eventually the report came out and uh, specified, and they clearly um, indicated a, um, an increase in fee-for-service training, specifically training for, um, for industry. And the example they gave was East-West Airlines in Tamworth. However, they didn't actually do any analysis of the size of the fee-for-service market in New South Wales at that time. The other thing I should point out, because this will seem very odd, for people, you know, 28 years, 30 years on. At the time, you couldn't charge fees to individual students because the Whitlam government back in the night had taken fees off universities and TAFE. So you couldn't say, right, we're going to put up the tuition fees for individual students. In fact, we had the nonsense where we used to charge, as a temporary measure, the students an admin fee, which was just supposed to pay for their enrolment. And if people dropped out, and what a refund, we said, no, you've already had it because you pay for your admin. In contrast, as you say, the Deverson report was a national report. It was all about modernising Australia's economy. And it was you have to say it was the modernisation was pushed very strongly by the ACTU. And what that was, um, they recognised that workers would have to be retrained to um, participate in this new economy. And Deverson, who I think was chair of Nissan, or Australia at the time, and also very big in the Victorian um, vocational education and training system, came out with a report. Unlike Scott, he actually looked at the market for fee-for-service industry training. Um, he got um, Pappas Carter, Evans and Coop, who were consultants who did a report on it. And he also got the State Training Authority, or whatever it was called at the time, in uh, Victoria to do some analysis of what the size of the market was. And he said that, you know, at, the, at that stage, fee-for-service, private sector fee-for-service training was only about 4% of funding in the TAFE sector. And he thought it reasonable to go up, not to 50%, but to 15%. So the New South Wales report was about modernisation, but it was about modernisation of the system and funding for that system. And the Deverson report was about paying for reward restructuring. Um, I, w I would say, in terms of you know, subsequently, um, that uh, you know some tapes have embraced this. But one of the reasons why I wanted to look at this is that, as Michael Hartman, one of our colleagues in the vet sector, says, you often get fly-in, fly-out politicians and uh, senior managers in TAFE who don't necessarily understand the full intricacies of what's going on. And uh, those levels of fee-for-service, as I said, some types are very good at it. And I'm thinking about Holmes, Glenn, William Angus in Victoria. But, you know, it's far more difficult to achieve than, um, uh, than people sometimes imagine for a whole variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. I'm sure we will. Um, how do the projections and the goals in those reports compare to where we're at today? With TAFE, was the the world view and the reality they were based in has that shifted significantly to the what's facing uh, TAFE in 2020? Well, it's interesting that Deverson, in one sense, was pretty right. I mean, TAFE 
um, especially in New South Wales or anywhere in the country, has never got to 50% self-funding, if that's the way you define it. I mean, the landscape's changed. We've got voucher schemes and things along those lines. Deverson said about 15%, and Simon's organisation, in terms of the last national figures, says it's about 15 to 20% in terms of fee-for-service training and TAFE in the last figures that we've got. That varies state by state. The Victorians, again, have maintained their lead over the last 20, 20-odd years, and their proportion of fee-for-service training is higher now whether that's to do with their organizational structure because the ironical thing about it is is that the scott report wanted to go for devolution and he recommended that uh, head office be slimmed down and all power go to what were initially college networks that rapidly became tafe institutes and for a quarter of a century we had tafe institutes devolved administrations in New South Wales, very similar to the Victorian system, never achieved the autonomy that was envisaged. But now in New South Wales, we've gone back uh, under one tape to a centralised system with a head office command and control economy. So everything goes in sort of cycles. But Deverson was pretty accurate. The only other thing I would say about um, those statistics depends what you count in as fee-for-service. I mean, there's private sector-funded fee-for-service, which certainly Scott and Deverson thought about, where it's something like, for example, where you get a large company like Visi or um, the Commonwealth Bank paying for training with their own money. In fact, a lot of fee-for-service is government contracts, like it could be the Navy or the Army buying um, resources off TAFE, or it could be something like the Adult Migrant English Service, so it's 15% fee-for-service as classified by the NCVR. In terms of private sector-funded fee-for-service, you know, it's only about half to two-thirds of that. So there's always definitional issues in there. But Deverson was broadly right, but it does vary institution by institution. Some have done it very well, some haven't. Do we need to tighten up on our understandings of that definition of fee-for-service then? Because it does strike me that if we're not capturing everything in that terminology, then it's really hard to compare apples to apples. Simon? Well, I think you're absolutely right. We do have some breakdowns, and probably the primary one is that we do split out international students, and I think, Robin, I'm safe to say that you're not focusing on the international student market. You're focusing absolutely. primarily on the, on the B2B activities. And, of course, since we've yes. had total vet activity, we can now get a sense of the scale of it. We report students, and that doesn't always translate into dollars, so we've got to be a little careful there. Um, but if I had one wish for the change to the information standard that we use to report and collect our data, it would be understanding who is paying for it. And by that I mean the distinction mm. between whether it's an individual who may be a full fee paying student or a business. And for reasons which elude me, we've never bothered to get that information in the past. And as we go through right now a phase of revising the information standard, my one wish, if I only had one, would be to be able to distinguish between those two things. And Craig, can I ask your reaction to that too? I imagine there's some empathy there. Yeah, so my sense is that some of the data is inconclusive. And so sometimes when I think about um, fee-for-service and sort of following up on what Simon's saying, 
and t- looking particularly at total vet activity, you'd, you'd have to say that some of that fee-for-service uh, or a large portion of it is sort of regulatory activity, you know, white card, responsible service of alcohol and the like. And you've also got to wonder whether how much of it it is um, fee-for-service, recorded as fee-for-service, but may well be apprenticeship incentives money from the Commonwealth, primarily to trainee ships where RTOs have typically used some of that to um, to offer training. So, and some of that's not what we would typically consider to be B2B. Um, so that's some of the challenges that, that play out there. Mm. Robin, uh, in some of the, the work that you've done, you've elaborated on some of the reasons that TAFEs have found fee-for-service such a difficult challenge, at least some TAFEs. Could you just expand on those for us? Yeah, look, um, TAFEs are large providers, but being a large provider doesn't necessarily mean that you've got capability and capacity in every area. And I think at the core of this question, and I'm a great supporter of TAFE, and TAFE's got a critical role, is what the priorities for TAFE should be. So, I mean, if I give an example from my, you know, fairly recent experience, I was, you know, working with some companies and we wanted to um, bring some workers in and they needed, as Craig has mentioned, a working at height certificate. Now, so we went along, you know, to the TAFE and, um, you know, that's fine. They could provide us with a teacher who's got a working at height certificate. But in doing that, that teacher wasn't standing around. That teacher was actually a teaching apprentices, you know, throughout the year. So if the TAFE wanted to do the contract, it was going to have to take that teacher off their regular apprentice class, which would upset the apprentices and the apprentice employer, and then find a replacement, you know, for that teacher in a quite disruptive way. Um, I mean, the other issue is... The people we wanted to work at Heights, they were going to be working on the 36th floor of a tower block. But, you know, some of the teachers that we were offered, sole experience has been with domestic construction, and they've never, they've got working at Heights, but they've never been above the second floor. So, you know, there's students, you know, can react to, 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 to that in terms. So it is issues like that that you do come across. Um, and it's very interesting. So what is the priority for stations? I mean, we found that TAFE was an extremely good apprentice trainer. You know, the staff were nurturing. They knew the industry and things like that. But to do this, and um, it's interesting, they've got the same problem in the UK. I've worked in the UK on and off. And David Hughes, who is Craig's opposite number in the United Kingdom, says that some of these FE colleges get criticised for not doing enough fee-for-service, but the reality is in the UK, differently here, that they have large numbers of full-time 16 to 19-year-olds. And those 16 to 19-year-olds provide a regular income. They get £12,000 for the academic year. And once they've recruited them and if they retain them, it's guaranteed income. Whereas if, if they were going to do, you know, seven contracts at £1,000 each, that's the irregular business you're constantly having to find. So you can understand why colleges are going to go for the regular income because they've got to keep their staff employed. 
So it's not, that's my basic point. It's not as easy as you think. Now, some TAFE colleges are really good at it, and it's where they specialise. Because, you know, often it needs highly specialised um, niche providers to do it, and TAFE have got some niche provider staff. But even if you're the biggest training provider in the Southern Hemisphere, you don't cover every speciality. So that, and it can be disruptive to some of your other work. And, you know, what's more important, to keep the flow through of apprentices or to do a B2B contract? And, you know, people have to make their own decisions. Craig, I'd ask you to reflect on that for us because, if I may, I can see there's two ends of a, a spectrum here. If you have got the stability of those uh, long-term programs, uh, that has uh, benefits that can flow through but can also then uh, give comfort to burgeoning bureaucracy that comes when humans get comfortable versus uh, those short contracts, staccato, uh, firing at every little change that's demanded by the marketplace, but then you lose some of the benefits of having the collegiality of uh, being together as sojourners within the TAFE system delivering training. How do you reflect on getting that balance right? Let me come to that. I just want to make one broader comment first, if you don't mind. Um, it has been very clear over the last little while that the vet sector's been through quite a tumultuous time, including declining participation and potentially declining public investment. Now, you would have thought that if the product was really good, private effort would step in um, and maybe um, balance out or keep enrolment numbers sort of um, current. And clearly that hasn't um, occurred. So one real question needs to be, what is it that businesses are interested in buying and do they have a willingness to buy? And sort of following up a bit on Robin's point earlier on, that often that, that B2B or the fee-for-service is actually publicly funded anyway by sort of contracts and the like. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge. But getting to your key uh, question, Steve, I actually think it does come down to scale. Where it works is where there is a big company at one end and obviously um, a big TAFE at the other end. And so there are some really good um, examples. So even in the New South Wales context, the Brain Road project um, obviously provided the depth and scale of skilling that was required so that the TAFE could so, well, okay, I can do a long-term investment of redirecting staff towards that. Um, uh, and things like um, even um, uh, a lot of tapes, particularly in Victoria, work with, uh, work with hospitals. And, of course, hospitals are big things that have big volumes, so that's what helps with um, uh, that sort of B2B and fee-for-service. Uh, then, of course, it's difficult when you get down to you've got a lot of small businesses um, uh, that could be episodic training and that becomes uh, more of a challenge. And and also on that, in working directly with big businesses that I, I can understand uh, grant the, uh, the environment for scale and security, we've seen a number of big businesses close shop uh, over the last 10 to 20 years. H- how has TAFE been going as far as its work with businesses and industry, uh, because I imagine when uh, a big manufacturer decides to pull out, uh, 
that has ramifications all the way through, including for TAFE. Um, that's, uh, that's right. But equally, as some of those big businesses close, um, new activity returns, but probably it's not returning in the form of big businesses. It's more atomised down through the supply chain and the like. So then we come back to this um, particular challenge of scale. But there are, again, some examples around uh, Australia where there is a good working relationship between the TAFE and maybe uh, a regionally-based industry association. So, for example, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, there's a good working relationship with sort of the Air Conditioning Engineering Association out there. Um, and that's, that's sort of a good example of a sort of a medium-level relationship. Um, I think where we need to go to in sort of public policy terms is to think through if we know that most employment and most innovation and productivity is going to have to come from SMEs, which make up a large part of our workforce, there's got to be some mechanism by which we can do better aggregation of some of that demand and create some of that um, B2B. So it may not actually be B2B, it might be B to G, like business to, you know, uh, a taste to a, to a group of um, uh, enterprises, for example. Um, that's probably a better way that could um, create some of that work. Yeah, Steve, can I just add just about Craig's point about who's actually paying? I mean, there's, that's a really interesting question because there's who's paying and who's benefiting. And, you know, industry is sometimes reluctant to pay for training because it thinks, well, the benefits go into the individual worker or alternatively in industries where people move from contract to contract, it's going to the next employer rather than, you know, the employer who's forked out the, forked out the money. And the other issue is, is that in terms of government paying, I've worked with contractors who are required in their contracts to say, have 10% of their workforce apprentices. And everybody thinks, oh, this is great. Is industry paying their apprentices? Well, it's not really, because all industry does is build in the cost of those apprentices to the government in terms of the government contract. So if they've got to take on more apprentices than they normally would, and all any company who wins the contract has got to do that, they just build that cost into the tender. So, you know, the government is still paying. And I sometimes think, especially because, um, you know, we've tried to shift and share the cost of training through things like training levies, which happened at that 1990 period but didn't work. I sometimes think that um, the government should recognise that training is a public good. It benefits the individual and the industry as much as the individual enterprise. So therefore, maybe it should be overtly government funded, which means that TAFEs don't have to work, um, waste so much time on chasing contracts, which are notionally paid for by industry, but are really paid for by government. Well, let's just imagine someone taps you on the shoulder, Robin. I'll ask Craig this question in a moment as well. And there is a Shreve report that will be handed down on how uh, the public providers might uh, reshape their role and remain a vital part of the uh, the machinery as Australia's economy goes through some restructuring at the moment, thanks to COVID-19. What sort of things would you be bringing to the table for uh, the vet sector, but particularly TAFE and public providers to to ponder and uh, and incorporate? 
Look, I think that we need to, you know, reinforce what the core business of TAFE is. And to me, the business of TAFE is, you know, um, being a trade apprentice trainer of both female and male trade occupations, whether it's a plumber or a hairdresser. And that's critical. I also think we've got, in the public sector, a huge role to play in workforce participation, preparing people to enter the workforce. And that can be both foundation studies, whether it's reading and writing for adults, or it can be initial foundation training in a technical area. And by that, I mean maybe individual support so people can get a job in an aged care or a childcare facility. So it's, it's the initial training, really, whether for apprentices or for people, especially those not in the workforce. And work I've done in other organisations is that if we increased workforce participation by preparing people for work, it would have a huge benefit on the economy. I think they're the core roles. And there's other things that TAFE do, which I think, you know, maybe they need to make a you know decision about. Do we need to chase all this um, fee-for-service training because it's just a funding mechanism and recognise that training is more of a public responsibility? I accept Craig's point entirely. That doesn't mean to say it can't be tailored and customised, but it doesn't necessarily have to be forced to be actually paid from a notionally and sometimes illusory private sector. There's the whole question of whether TAFE should be in higher-level vocational qualifications or not. And then it's interesting because Simon's organisation has put out, you know, there's 4.5 million individual students in VET, but I think over 2 million are doing single subjects, you know, um, which might be a first aid or something like that rather than a whole course. And one of the things that absolutely surprised me, the private sector does about more of that than the TAFE sector, so maybe that's something that TAFE could play a greater role in. But... I do think it's a question about priorities for TAFE. TAFE is a public provider. It's a social good organisation. And I think that it needs to be properly funded to do that rather than, as I said, sometimes people coming in from outside and thinking that they can get lots of money by charging fees for commercial training. Craig, are you able to share a couple of thoughts from the Robertson report, if there were one, to, to contemplate for the future role of public providers from your perspective? Well, I'd certainly go to the point around uh, workforce participation that uh, Robin has just made. I think we've gone too far down the pathway that we tra- we think if we train people in specific skills for an occupation, they've set that person up for life. And if there's anything that we're experiencing now in the midst of this COVID-19, is that that's actually a bit of a false economy. So what we really need to work towards is you've got to make sure that public provision, publicly funded provision, um, builds those deep capabilities. Um, as Robin was mentioning, literacy, numeracy, even digital skills um, and the like. Then it's an interesting question about who holds responsibility for what you would consider to be um, industry based or industry translatable skills versus business um, sort of related skills. Now, I think it does make sense that the vet sector does look at providing industry standard skills, um, but I think it's gone a little bit too far to say that this is what a particular business wants. 
um, and therefore the public purse would pay for it. So I think sort of going forward is we should have a better investment into the deep um, capabilities of an individual. Um, certainly we should teach them to and train them to industry standards, but I then think there is a new compact that's required with business to say some of this stuff and you to do that once a graduate has entered into um, the workforce. And I think that will give Australia a stronger base of adaptable um, citizens, really. Um, and I do liken it to the point that um, Robin was making. We're probably in a new sort of stage of the Australian economy similar to when award restructuring was around, because at that point, Australia had decided to bring down trade barriers and it knew that people were going to be dislodged um, and at risk of not being, uh, from the labour market and at risk of not being able to get back into work. So we've really got to rethink what that training offer is. Then the last point I'd make on TAFEs is this notion of them being a comprehensive provider. Um, in other words, they've got a range of industries that they cover, a range of uh, technically competent, highly competent um, trainers, and they've also got people who understand where industry is heading because they've come from that industry themselves and they are observer of that industry. So there is a deep capability within those tastes to be able to say, let us work at the local level with industry um, to be able to help those industries and their business um, uh, their business members um, to really develop new productivity and capability. Thank you for that. I would imagine that reading both the Shreve report and the Robertson report in 30 years would be just as equally entertaining and interesting as referring to the Scott and Deverson reports today. Craig Robertson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Robin Shreve, thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, Simon Walker. Thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.